Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Good evening, Dark Knight of the Podcast fans and fanatics, listeners and lovers. It's Roger, and I'm so happy to be here with all of you. And I do have one question for you, Troy. Why couldn't we just spend Christmas together? Do you hear me, you stupid fucking cunt? How aggressive. Hey, where's my taser at? You're asking for it, you motherfucker. I know that's how you like it, Troy. Oh, I hope. <laughs> Ooh, you got a thing or two to show me. <laughs> hey, well, if we're role playing here, I do have a thing or two to show you. Hopefully, the the fans have seen the the title of this episode and, and know that you know get get the reference otherwise they're going to think we're being un- unusually aggressive to each other Roger and we're never aggressive oh. to each other no it's only love here at dark night of the podcast love and joy and hugs and kisses yes and you you listeners should be very pleased because we are getting this episode out to you in a timely manner if you listened to our last episode silent night deadly night and if you haven't naughty but at the end we said there may be a, a gap in a new episode because roger was gallivanting all around nevada and uh, i was like i don't know if we're gonna get one out but lo and behold he is back in in good old ohio and we can get this out for yes you. i'm home i'm home i'm back from nevada and let me tell you which i'm surprised because all those i was watching all those flights get canceled left and right and i'm like oh you're gonna be stuck in, in nevada uh, well let me say that when it came to nevada maybe this is just the midwesterner in me but i've never been to nevada other than Las Vegas. I've never been to like the specific area I was in, which was um, but right by Reno, right side of Tahoe. And I guess I expected, like I anticipated desert as in like scorpions and snakes. Like that was literally my question was, Gustavo, are there going to be scorpions and snakes? And he's like, no, this is not at all what you are anticipating. And we got there and it was more snow than we have here in Cleveland. Significantly more. Well, yeah, because it's it's in the mountains, right? Yeah, we were like right. So we were right at the bottom of the mountains that kind of lead up to Tahoe. But I mean, it was still very snowy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I've never been to Tahoe either. So I've my my Nevada experience has been primarily Las Vegas, uh, Laughlin. I've been to Laughlin, Hoover Dam. I've driven through Nevada to get to Death Valley. I love I love Nevada. Love it, love it, love it. I love Las Vegas. I could see myself living there someday if if my cards fell into the right place, but. Uh, we shall see, but I'm glad you're back. I'm glad we can get this episode out because it's not too far from Christmas. And this technically is a Christmas themed film, right? That we're covering. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we are going to be discussing the 2007 film P2. 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 
Yeah, which was a suggestion from one of our fans and patrons, Craig Brocken. So thank you, Craig, for suggesting this. Yeah, thank you for suggesting anything in general. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> guys, because like we always say, if you have something you want to hear us cover, you just got to let us know. We can't, we're not mind readers. No, but we know that you guys have thoughts and opinions and you have titles that you would like to hear us either raise up or tear down. <laughs> and either way, it's going to provide for a fun time. So you guys, you know, especially our Patreon supporters, throw them at us. We'll gladly uh, add it to our list, our lineup. And such is the case with today with P2. Yes. And speaking of Patreon, we do have a Patreon. And if you're in the mood for something a little bit more New Year's Eve themed, we did post our second exclusive Patreon episode to Patreon today, which is us chatting away about the gay-themed slasher flick 2019, Midnight Kiss. And who better to, to chat about Midnight Kiss than two old queens, right? Oh, God, pucker up. Because, you know, if there's one person who likes Midnight Kisses, it's me and Troy. And all the boys are getting kisses this year yeah. with all that COVID going around. <laughs> Oh, COVID. I'm so over COVID. Oh, but, you know, I think it's here to stay, unfortunately. Yeah. I, you know, it's one of those things at this point, I've just accepted it as part of our fate. You know what we need, Roger? We need we need a um, an office job so that we can get off work late and parade through a parking garage trying to find our car. Oh my God. Have you ever worked in a, have you ever worked in an office building where you uh, had to park in a parking garage? Well, I'm a non-driver. Let's be clear. Okay. I have, see, so, I have not, I have not. So I, but not. I have worked an office job that has sucked the soul out of my body, much like the job this poor individual has in P2. So I can relate in that regard. I've never been sexually molested though in any job. Well, no, I had one that was uh, someone crossed the lines. I'll say that, but that was at a donut store, and I was eighteen. Um, <laughs> was he trying to show you his hole, his donut hole? Oh my god, the jokes we can make, the glazed oh. hole jokes we can make. Oh, I just think a, a, a long john. Did he show you his long john, Roger? Was it cream filled? Uh, I mean, okay. <laughs> none of these things really fit this person's description. Uh, it was more of one of like a donut, one of those donut bites, if anything. <laughs> oh, Lordy. We're, we're, the, the place is dark night of the podcast takes us, Roger. So shall we start chatting about P2? We shall start, Troy. We are. I am ready and raring to go. You know, I sat down and I watched this movie one or two times and then I stepped away from it and I watched it again after I got back from vacation. And I, um, I've got to say, after kind of going through like the uproar of the holiday and kind of seeing Christmas in full swing, when I leave the holiday, when I leave it behind me for the year, I feel very much the same way I feel the character in this film feels concluding the movie P2. Um, <laughs> I feel like she's very much in a fuck my life and fuck this holiday kind of mentality. And I'm right there with her, uh, Angela. I feel she's a very relatable character. And um, I feel like the experiences she goes over the course of this night are pretty fucking uh, horrifying and exhausting and mind-numbing and terrible. And I feel the exact same way after concluding the holidays. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. I'm glad that they're over. I'm glad that they're over. Although I did not experience anything half as horrifying as as this character did i am just glad that the holidays are over unnecessary stress yeah yeah so p2 
holiday themed. It takes place on Christmas Eve. Oh, there, there's Christmas decor. There's Christmas songs that um, to to make it seem Christmassy and festive, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the film 2007 starts with. Uh, well, it stars. We have to. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of highlight the cast. Even the cast is very small. It's mainly a two-person show, right? You have the the main character of Angela, played by Rachel Nichols, and the character of Thomas, who is the security guard at the parking garage, played by Wes Bentley. Wes fucking Bentley, mama From, like. Yeah, from American Beauty, uh, American Horror Story, um, yeah. So, and they they pre- there's two there's a few other little supporting characters that pop in and out of the film, but these two are primarily the 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 two, the two actors that are focused on the entire film. Yeah, you know, it's a surprisingly uh, intimate film with a very small cast, and I'd say that it very much works in this film's favor. Um, just because it, it's a different approach than I think we're used to, especially within the genre. Uh, it is not in any way an ensemble cast. It is very much focused around these two prominent characters with a couple of other characters sprinkled in just to help the story kind of move along. Uh, you get very minimal backstory or setup coming into it to start off. But again, in this, this case, I think it works in the film's favor um, because you get all these kind of details that unfold over the length of the movie. And you come to realize a lot of things at the same time as the protagonist, the character Angela. You as the viewer kind of walk in her footsteps and um, almost in a way encounter a lot of things in real time. Aside a few little, aside from a few little time frame jumps where, that you get set up in the beginning of the movie, everything else is very kind of slow burn and takes over the place over the course of this one night. Do want to kind of mention that it's directed by Frank Frank Calhoun, who went on to direct um, Piranha 3D and the and the remake of Maniac with Elijah Wood. Uh, and the film was written by one of the screenwriters of the film was Alexander Aha from High Tension and the Hills Have Eyes remake. So it has some some pretty heavy hitting horror talent behind it, which I think is pretty evident. Yeah, and it. It had a lot of that buzz around Alexander Aha's involvement as well. I remember in the promotional material when this was coming out, because he was very much kind of like on the top of his, like at his prime at that time, um, his name was kind of all over the promotional material. I I very much remember that. Oh, yeah. They were definitely trying to, you know, hype up the the high tension and Hells Have Eyes connection with this film. Even though this film, I think, is a little bit... It's not as, it's not really as flashy as those two films are. Uh, it's, I mean, we're talking about this film takes place on in one setting. There's not a lot of set pieces to the film, although, and there's not a lot of death scenes. Although the death scenes in the film, when they happen, are pretty damn graphic. Very, and because the body count in this movie is surprisingly minimal. Um, the few times that characters do actually, you know, meet their meet their maker. Um, yeah, it goes balls to the walls, and thus it's all the more shocking and surprising when that does occur. But yeah, overall, you know, the fact that this was written by a man, it's it's kind of almost surprising to me because in a lot of ways, a, a lot of aspects of this film are rather ahead of its time. I think the, the the commentary on how women are treated in the workplace and how they're spoken to 
by men in general, how, how that plays out seems very um, progressive to me, but not in a way that seems like beat over my head, like in like maybe, for example, the 2019 remake of Black Christmas, which is like, we're feminist and we're all we're going to do is scream about it the whole movie. This film gives you a really likable, strong female lead who is capable and willing to not back down when some of these male characters kind of put her in these predicaments that treat her less than. I really like how she stands up for herself, how she handles some of these scenarios, how she chooses to even forgive a certain character at one point. Uh, not saying that she would have acted out further, as you'll come to find out with the situation, taken actions against them, but she still seems to have very much kind of been the one in this position to have blessed him with her forgiveness, despite him doing something really repulsive. And I just think she presents like a really great viewpoint on a woman, you know, of a woman in modern day society, in the workplace, in the corporate world, who's trying to get ahead and, and working her ass off to do so. So I think that's an aspect of the film that's written really well, and again, surprisingly written by a man. But uh, in regards to this being located, and in, in, honestly, it is pretty much just one location. It's this office with this parking garage, and it's simply restricted to that. Um, though it is a very simplistic setup, it is uh, luckily filled with very high-end, high-quality visual uh, elements from the camera work to the lighting, the overall tone of the movie. They use the environment very well, uh, usage of shadow play and so forth and so on. That really just, I think, complements the film and makes it look very high end, very big budget, even though it being a very minimalistic film, you know? The film begins with, uh, right away, we kind of know it's a Christmas film because of the opening credit song is Santa Baby. Santa Baby. Yeah. And the camera kind of is pushing in on a specific car that is still parked in the parking ramp. I do like the like the title card it is pretty cool because you it pushes in on the um, the cement. Uh, what am I trying to say? Cement block, cement pole that has the P2 parking level two on it. And it kind of just freezes there. And then the names of the West yeah. Bentley and Rachel pop up next to it. That's kind of cool. And then the camera just moves into the car and it goes to the trunk. And all of a sudden a crowbar pushes open the lock and a girl eyeball peeks in the opening and screams. A very uh, fluid opening sequence. It's kind of all shot almost through one angle for the most part, kind of floating. You're almost like gliding through this parking garage. Um, and it's, it's a very eerie setup because you just hear Eartha Kit, boom, let's take a moment to acknowledge one Eartha Kit, my God. I mean, Troy, you know, Eartha Kit, you're familiar. I do know. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you've seen Ernest Scared Stupid, have you not? Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, it's her rendition of Santa Baby and it, it's chilling because you just have the song playing at first, but they bring in these really like subtle low tones over the course of the song and it, and eventually when it does hit that you see this, um, what ends up being a um, like a carjack bust through the lock of this trunk. There's this really great stinger moment. It's very striking. And it just, you know, the music just kind of abruptly ends and you, you, the whole tone of everything is just shattered. Uh, it, it's really um, impactful. But I do also want to acknowledge the, like you said, the usage of the location with the, um, uh, the, the the floor the painting on the wall that states P2. It's up. It's like white letters up against a red background. And 
It's often used. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cement pillar. I couldn't think of the word. It's a cement pillar that has the the P2. And then there's like when they get to the lower level, P1, P3, P4, just to let them know what level they're on. But P2 is kind of the primary focus Mm -hmm. of the film because that is where the um, security office is, is on level P2. Yeah. And you, you don't forget it because there are plenty of shots where that specific marker is like hovering in the background especially some very distinct shots within the office where you always see it kind of looming in the background uh i thought it was really cool from in like a production standpoint like the uh whoever designed the like the layout of this office and had that always looming in the background once you see this movie you're never going to forget the fucking name of it i'll say that like it's just always present it's always there it's almost eerie in its own way um and i appreciate it because yeah you'll never forget that this movie is entitled p2 so so after the opening sequence which we we kind of the audience really doesn't know what it what's going on if that's if it's like real time if it's but we do find out as the movie progresses what it is the mo- we cut to Angela, our main character, Angela, played by Rachel Nichols, who is working late in her office on Christmas Eve. She's multitasking. She's on the phone with her boss, who's telling her she has to make changes to this um, proposal that she's that's due, and he's not happy with what she tells him. She the changes she did to it, so she, he's like, "You have to do more." She calls her sister to tell her sister, "Hey, I'm going to be a little bit late, but I'll definitely be there." Which is kind of a theme throughout the movie. How many times this girl calls her sister? Good lord! And then, kind of what you were talking about happens right away, right with the whole forgiveness thing, because one of the one of her coworkers named Jim comes into the office. And right away, you can tell there's some sort of tension because she's kind of pretty dismissive of him. She's like, yeah, Jim, what can I do for you? And he proceeds to apologize profusely for what happened the other night at the Christmas party. He says he was drunk. He drank too much. He he, he just he didn't have any control over what he was doing. And he was deeply, deeply sorry. She actually, like you said, accepts his apology. And I can't say, you know, he generally, genuinely does seem sorry. Yeah, yeah. This provides a really interesting, I mean, the opening to this film, once you get introduced to this character of Angela, first thing right off the bat, great fucking performance. She's so well played. Rachel Nichols knocks it out of the park. Very relatable, very strong willed. I I genuinely believe that this whole conversation that takes place between um, Angela and Jim, that Rachel did opt to lean towards forgiveness, even though what you, you learn what happened was completely unacceptable. Not saying that, you know, scenarios like this should go without punishment. I absolutely think that they should, but I also think that she's a character who's able to acknowledge the room for error here. And um, while I do think that at the end of the day, Jim should receive punishment for what he did, if she has it in her heart to be able to look past this flaw, this issue and forgive the guy, I mean, more power to her. She's a greater person than I am. And um, it just shows her to be a very strong, moral centered individual. You know, my thought is she, yeah, she, she truly is trying to forgive him because she probably realizes that she kind of is stuck working with this guy for her. How how long? Who knows? However long she's going to be working at this job, and you can tell she's like a go getter. Like she wants to, per, she wants to do well at her job. She is a hard worker, 
because it's Christmas Eve and she's one of the few people that that's left at the office. Even, even one of the characters comes in and tells her, gosh, you're, you're one of the only people here. And she ends up being the last person to leave uh, because as she's going to, to make a copy or something, she runs into Carl, who is like the front desk security person of the main office building. And he's like, Hey, are you ready to leave? How long are you going to be here? And she's like, no, if you just wait a minute, I'm going to go get my stuff and I'll ride down the elevator with you. But you definitely can tell, like I said, by, by her actions that she is dedicated and she's focused on her, her job and her career. So she's going to, she's going to do what she can to maintain that. And so her forgiveness of Jim, I think is definitely also kind of balanced with that in mind. It is, you get so much uh, from, you know, you get so much about this character right off the bat. Because this film is so intimate and really just takes the time to just explore this very, very specific relationship between two characters, um, you just get a, a really great setup for a solid understanding of who the protagonist is. And you, when you see that she's a, she's devoted to her work, you also get the idea that probably in in some aspects of her life a detriment because you can all you hear the conversations with her family that they're already let down that she's going to be late that she's really trying to find balance between her job and her life but she's one of those people who is a workaholic who's putting her job first who's probably pushing herself a little too hard um at some at a certain point it's addressed that you know the idea of her in a relationship comes up and why a certain character doesn't believe it because she works too much. And I def—I mean, we all know people like this. I think a lot of us had been this person at certain points in our lives. It's extremely relatable. And there's a huge element for sympathy for this character because she's really just a go-getter who's trying to succeed. And between working a job that's clearly absolutely taking advantage of her and working with, you know, men in the workplace who are also in their own ways taking advantage of her, it's it's got to be a pretty miserable place to be. But um, I respect the girl for, you know, her work ethic and and uh, she's just such a great focal character to follow that even in the moments that are not horror leading up to the horror she's easy to watch easy to follow and i'm interested in what's happening in her life yeah so her and carl ride the elevator down to the lobby together and they're just kind of chit-chatting about where she's from, what she's doing for uh, Christmas Eve, which is going to her sister's house. In the meantime, there is this uh, couple that come on the elevator who are obviously arguing with each other uh, and then just like stand in the back the whole time and, and, and glare and pout as as Rachel and Carl are having this conversation. Yeah, he takes her. Right, she rides down with them. She gets to her the the parking garage level. She goes to her car. And dun, 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 it won't start. There's a little line when they split off that I want to acknowledge where he uh, where she mentions she grew up on a on a farm, which makes me think that, oh, she's like she's that much more capable. We got a corn fed girl and we don't fuck with the corn fed girl here at Dark Knight of the podcast. They're they're capable. They're competent. They know how to get shit done. Um, there's also one thing I want to acknowledge. There was a little startle moment with uh, Carl and I forgot to bring this up. When his character is introduced, a little moment that does feel like they tried to kind of inject this startle in to give the audience a some kind of feeling of of fear or foreboding. Because aside from this little um, flash flash forward intro that we have, the movie doesn't enter or establish any um, 
vibes of horror right off the bat. It takes a minute for it to simmer and build up and get to a place where you really realize that there's a, something to be afraid of, something to fear. It it starts off feeling kind of just like an office space drama almost in a way. Um, it really takes its time, which I think is beneficial in the long run for the film. But they, they, they did kind of insert this little startle that I feel felt kind of forced, but like I also get it. They're trying to keep the fans, the horror movie fans, at bay so they have the payoff later in the film. Oh, yeah. when You mean when he bumps into her? When they... Yeah, and they make it kind of this big, like, oh, God. Yeah, like, they really try to make it, like, kind of kind of a big thing. And it did feel like a pinch force. But I think they're just, they're merely trying to, like, ensure that the horror movie aficionados are going to, like, be satisfied early on in the film. They don't want anyone getting bored. But I don't really think it needed it, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, because it's not that long before the horror actually starts, you know what I mean? It's it's not like you're waiting a half hour. It starts pretty quickly after this moment. I mean, the moment she realizes her car won't start, I think that's when kind of the horror aspect kicks in, or at least the uneasiness. Yeah, well, because the moment they honestly, the moment we get into the parking garage, there's automatically an, an element of unease. And I think we can all relate to that because I just think parking garages naturally lend to this kind of like discomfort and like paranoia. I mean- Come on, Troy. Parking garages do not sit well with horror cinema in general. Ask Alison Brie in Scream 4 or ask Maya in Cursed. I mean, they, they never turn out to be a good thing for anybody. And nobody can really hear you scream. So I think overall, the moment we get there, yeah. Yeah, parking garages are terrifying. I mean, I'm trying to think of all the parking garages, parking garage um, scenes that we've gotten in horror films. I mean, look at Poltergeist three. Yes, I was just gonna oh say. Oh my god! Look at like Demons two. Yep. Yeah. Um, Land Land of the Dead. I mean, there's something very creepy about a parking garage. Even remember, I, uh, this is this is off the wall, but I'm just saying this is how creepy parking garages is when a Golden Girls episode uses a parking garage as a scare device. You remember that episode? When when Rose is parked in the parking garage and she thinks she's getting chased. Oh my god! Yes, I do remember. Yes, you yes, have to remember that episode. Yes. So, I mean, par- parking garages are terrifying, and everyone knows it. So they're they're easy they're easy fodder for a, a a horror film or a horror moment. Yeah, and I think because of that, honestly, in a way, Troy, the parking garage almost becomes a third focal character in this film because it's just it's so prevalent. It's all consuming. Um, and it's very much the all-encompassing element of this movie. I mean, hell, it's called P2 for a reason. But, like, they really, aside from this little opener and the very last shot of the movie, they don't leave this environment at all. It's a very claustrophobic movie in, in that sense as well. Uh, because there's not a lot of places that what, – what, what, there's not a lot of places someone who is being chased or stalked can go. As we learn, as we find out. Uh, So her car won't start. So she has to load all of her her stuff that she's taking to her sisters and make her way to the security office, which is on the parking level too. She goes in and immediately the dog, Rocky the Rottweiler, barks at her. And Thomas finally comes out, which is Wes Bentley. He seems like a very nice guy, very concerned. She asks him to unlock the elevator He's like, oh, your car won't start. Maybe you left your 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 headlights on. And she's like, no, no, no. I'm pretty careful about that. 
He's like, well, I have a charger. If you like, you know, if we'd like to use it, it'll take a minute. She's like, no, I just want to get a cab. And he's like, well, it's Christmas Eve. Cabs are going to be, you know, it's going to take a while to get a cab. She's like, okay, how long will the charging take? And he'll be, he's like, just a couple minutes. I'll go grab it. And, you know, again, he seems very helpful, very concerned about this whole situation. He doesn't waste time to to kind of buckle up and, 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 and do what he can to help. Yes, but I also find it very interesting in the way this character is written, because as you'll obviously come to learn, he's, it's very delicate the way that they handled the evolution of this character, intentionally so. He's very willing to help, almost too willing. Um, and there's a few things he says right off the bat that read uncomfortable. Like, for example, when she makes a comment, uh, he, well, when he makes the comment about leaving her lights on, and she says, no, I'm really good about that. Uh, and he kind of just keeps the conversation going as though he didn't even hear it like about, Oh no, you probably did. And it's, it almost reads like patronizing <laughs> towards her. And that carries through the whole theme of this character, even in his intense need to prove to her that he's like a gentleman and like going to, t- in his mind, take care of her. He still manages to like put her down uh, in weird little ways. The dialogue obviously becomes more and more aggressive as the film goes on but like it everything is so backhanded towards her even in the most subtle commentary that he makes this character is very well written it's he's very interesting to me they could have done so many things with this character but the fact that they decided to go with a very handsome actor was interesting to me because like they could have totally made him awkward and physically you know more unkempt but they chose to make him like handsome and i think the whole reason that he is very lonely individuals we come to learn is honestly just with his inability to read people or communicate with them in a way that's comfortable or likable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He is an intro. I I was thinking that the whole time I was watching this is it's very much is a well-written character and Wes Bentley brings a lot to the character. I think he's one of the reasons why this character works so well. And you're right, they could have gone with several other types of, of actors to play this role, but I think it kind of plays in their favor to use Wes Bentley or to use a, a, a handsome actor because right away we're not, the audience and her really aren't really taken aback by him, right? Because he is, he's young looking, he's handsome, he's, you know, smile, all smiles. There's nothing really intimidating about him. He's not creepy looking, clean cut, boy next door type, right? Yeah, he's somebody who you look at and you would think that you could trust them. Yes, absolutely. Especially being a security guard. Like he just has everything working in his favor as somebody who you would just be like, oh yeah, this is this person is specifically here to help me or or make my experience easier. Um which is obviously the complete opposite over the course of the movie, but she has every reason to think that he is a positive figure. Yeah. Well, they go out to her car, right? And he has the charger hooked up to her battery still won't start. However, he even makes the comment about, Hey, these, these, these cars are pretty reliable, aren't they? She's like, yeah, they're supposed to be. And then he asks her to turn her headlights on the headlights turn on right away. Right? So it's not her battery. It's it's something else. Wonder what it could be. We never find out, but obviously I'm assuming it's very much implied that he did something to her car, right? 
Yeah, I definitely get the vibe that there's a lot of things. There's a lot of little things here that you don't necessarily know what he did or how he did it leading up to the moment. But he's there's been a lot of tampering, um, a lot of things that have occurred without her knowing. Kind of like I said earlier, the movie kind of unfolds in a way where you learn things in real time along with Angela. Uh, like, for example, there's something that occurs with the character of Carl later on that you didn't see anything that occurred you know, that transpired prior to this reveal. Um, but obviously something occurred with this character and you don't realize it until Angela does, you know? So um, it's it's kind of a smart way to do it because it keeps the level of tension and suspense at a, at a peak all throughout the film. Like this movie may not have a lot, like a huge body count um, or aside from one or two really gory mo- moments, there's not a shit ton of blood and gore, but what it does have is just crazy suspense like the movie you are always on the edge of your seat uh you never know what his character is really capable of because you haven't gotten into his head that much she right away says you know what i give up i'm just gonna call a cab and i need to get to my my sister's house i'm already i'm already late and he makes a comment he's like well i'm just trying to help and she's like yeah yeah i know I, i'm super appreciative but i, I just need to um like I said, get, 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 get home. So he agrees. He takes her to the elevator. Uh, and then he makes a comment like he, as, after she just told him she needs to get, get home for Christmas Eve to spend time with her family because she's already late. He says, Oh, well, you know, I made this small Christmas meal for myself and you're more than welcome to join me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And then she, she gives him this look and he's like, Oh no, no, I'm just kidding. Like he knows deep down, he knows that she's going to be like put off by this, but he still says it just to, just to test the waters and see what happens. Yeah. And just to gauge, because I wonder what would happen if she would have said yes. You know, I mean, maybe things wouldn't have went the way they did, but who knows, but it, it's just a weird thing for him to do. And that right away kind of got my attention as being kind of like the first thing that was really, like, really, really creepy. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're really good at making it subtle. Uh, For the first scenes that you're with the character, like the subtle little mannerisms, facial expressions, um, moments of discomfort, they're minor, but like you see it in her face, certain things he says, uh, his insistence, his just insistence on being... um, there to help her and that all he was trying to do was help like he says it multiple times and it's kind of like it just it's signs of things to come like you can read the body language you can read into what he's saying something's a little off but you can tell that her character is really not fully aware of just the severity of the situation by any means whatsoever no well she gladly gets away from him and goes into the lobby to call a cab uh, and then she calls her sister again to tell her sister, Hey, you will never believe what happened. My car won't start, but I, I I'll be there as soon as I can, uh, just go ahead and get started and I'll be there s- soon. Uh, and as she's waiting for the cab, she dozes off a little bit. The cab shows up, calls her. She sees the cab. She's like all excited. We're like, Oh good. She's going to get out of there. Yay. 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 But obviously if she would have got out of there, the movie would have been 15 minutes long. <laughs> so what ends up happening is she goes to try to get out of the doors and they are locked. What a great simple way of like setting up the shit that happens. Like the fact that she's simply been locked in her office building and the cab driver just sits there and he's like, um, okay, come on. Like he's pissed. Like he's, he's not being patient at all. 
No, but it's, you know, I mean, it's very realistic. It's Christmas Eve. I mean, these office buildings in, in, in downtown New York are not going to stay open. You know, I mean, doors are going to be locked. So it's it's not like it's far-fetched, right? Exactly. Like, it, it's such a simple setup for the the beginning of how these events kind of transpire. It's completely viable. Um, and they don't try to make it some big, lavish anything. Like, girl is locked in her office building over the holidays. That sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can happen. I, I know how many times I've I've been in, in like my school, schools that I work at that are like, hey, if you're not out of here by three o'clock, we're locking the doors, whether you're in or not. You know, I mean, people don't want to stick around past, you know, a certain time on Christmas Eve. Good Lord. And this is why I don't work. I don't work. A, I work a job where I don't have to deal with this shit. I work a job where I have two weeks off for Christmas. I ain't dealing with any of this bullshit. Okay. Parading around a goddamn parking garage on Christmas Eve. That ain't going to happen with me. No, ma'am. Nope. She go, she goes to a parking. She goes into the parking garage to go to the the main gate, and of course it's shut. And she's trying to ring the parking attendant who is fucking Thomas. No answer. In the meantime, the fucking cab just punks and, and drives away. Oh, poor her. Yeah, like he he literally sits there for a moment, and he's like the fuck out of there. Like it's very realistic. It's just exactly as I would anticipate a cab driver. Well, because would be. it's it's well, it's, it's Christmas Eve, and you know he has tons of other fares waiting that he can certainly go and and get to make up for this one, right? So she's like exact. I mean, she's exasperated. This uh, she's she's just like, what the fuck else can go wrong? And all of a sudden, the lights of the parking garage start to shut off. Ugh. Oh my god! This is the moment. Like I would already be stressed out with everything but when those when those lights go down that's when i would i would just break i would be like what the fuck no way i'd be doing anything i'd be breaking windows at this point anything i could do because to get it's the fuck pitch out of black there. she has to use her little flip phone because this is 2007 to to illuminate the uh, her, the path as she's walking right and as she's walking through the garage she trips falls face first Onto the cement, which looks like it was painful. All of her presents and shit go flying. She finds her phone, and as she's kind of shining the the light of the phone and and kind of getting back up, there's this really effective, I would say, jump scare, where all of a sudden, as she's up upright, we see Thomas's face behind her, and he immediately puts a rag over her mouth. This sequence... Is I mean, like we've seen movies where we've seen people get hacked up. We've seen movies with elaborate kills. We've seen movies where people have got chainsaws through their torsos. The way that this sequence plays out is honestly probably scarier to me than a majority of the the gory, horrific things we have seen over the course of this podcast because it is done in a way that feels so authentic, so true to life, and it's so simple, but it's drawn out. And the moment the rag goes over her mouth, like she's struggling, she's fighting. Um, but you see like the whole process of the drug kind of starting to take effect. And she eventually just kind of goes limp in his arms. And it's like, it's scarier than many things I could picture from a film because it just feels very much believable. This happens to people. It's so simple. It's not elaborate. It's just rag over the mouth and this big, long, drawn out struggle. And it makes your skin crawl. Yeah, and like I said, that face reveal when he's behind her, that made me that made me jump. 
Oh yeah, and it's the lighting, like the blues and like the the fluorescence of the of the parking garage really do favor to some of these moments as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, like we talked about, parking garages are creepy as as to begin with, and then when they're dark and you have no idea who's lurking in them, and uh, there's so many like different nooks and crannies, somebody could c- conceal themselves from you in. They're just terrifying. Good lord. Then she slowly. Blurrily comes comes to consciousness, and as she comes to consciousness, she realizes she is at the table, beautifully set table with Christmas candles and Christmas decor on it. Uh, but she's in the security office. Thomas is dressed in the Santa Claus suit. Yes, we we've gotten another obsessed killer in Santa attire, even if though only for a brief moment. Uh, how many killer Santas are we going to go through this holiday season, Troy? She is in a white dress now, just very simple, plain white dress, cleavagey, cleavagey white, dress. white dress. Yes, and as as you start to realize, as she's coming to, and you as the viewer kind of already know what's happened, the concept of her costume change into this new piece of attire and what all that entails becomes a very unsettling idea. Yeah, she immediately, because I don't think she necessarily knew that, you know, Thomas was the one that knocked her out with, with the rag, right? So she's, she's really confused. So she's asking him, what, where am I? And he's like, you're fine. You, 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 you're, you fell. I found you. She's like, you know what? I think I'm going to be sick. And it's this moment, like she gets, she tries to get up from the table to throw up and realizes that her leg is chained to the table leg. So right away, she's realizes that Thomas is the one that knocked her out. And he's obviously a fucking nutcase. Now I got to say right off the bat that Wes Bentley would not have to go through all this nonsense with me because I would be putty in his hands. I don't care how crazy he fucking is. No hesitation uh, because uh, it's seriously, his beautiful face does at time almost take away from the creep factor. I got to say that. However, his neurotic and increasingly more unhinged performance uh, as Thomas luckily makes, I don't want to say makes up for it, but covers, covers that up for me, makes it, makes it more palatable that he is so pretty because he does progressively become more and more like neurotic and in his head. He's almost like in a way I'd almost compare him to like a lovely, beautiful male take of like an Annie Wilkes. From, from like a misery, like the obsession factor, the irrational aspects. He has a complete loss of the grasp of reality, which makes him very unsettling. There's a lot of conversations he has with Angela progressively over the course of the film that she'll say certain things and he'll completely ignore her. It's, it's a very interesting character. And the way that they wrote him, it's very... Um, I like that this is such an intimate story because it really allows you to like get into his head more whereas if this would have had a larger cast we probably wouldn't have gotten to see such a great character study of who this character is you know yeah and we get to we get to realize that he knows a lot about angela that he must have been kind of following her um stalking her you know uh, Whatever you want to say, he knows a lot of information about her because this this conversation at this at the dining room table 
or the table here in the security office. Basically, what he's doing is he wants to ha- he wants her to have this Christmas dinner with him that he made, complete with wine. It's California wines. California <laughs> wine from where he's from, right? <laughs> yes. uh, and then she, he even like he's trying to have small talk with her, ignoring like he said stuff that she's asking him. She's like, you know, where are my clothes? You know what 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 happened? And he's just rambling on about where are you from? And then she's like, she tells him and he's like, I've never heard of that. Where's that at? He pours her some wine. And I think that she starts to realize that this dude is obviously not playing with a full deck. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, she starts to almost manipulate things a little bit like not. Yeah. Her demeanor, her demeanor changes because initially she's kind of hostile towards him. She even cusses at him and tells her to he better fucking untie her and, uh, and all this stuff. But when she realizes that he is obviously not playing with the full deck, like I said, or like you mentioned, he, she starts to try to manipulate him by telling him, Thomas, I have a family that I have to get home to, you know, if, if you untie me and let me go, I won't say a word and then we can grab a drink after the new year. Yeah. She makes a, she makes a promise to get a drink at a later date. Um, and he just completely, blows it off he tells her that some plans are just made to be broken like he's determining for her uh what she is and is not to do and it makes for a very uncomfortable and skeezy balance between the two of them like this this weird relationship that develops over the course of this night between the two of them because it's clear that to to his character to thomas she has absolutely no ability to dictate or make calls for herself and his whole thing is he keeps trying to talk up what basically the fact that he's her knight in shining armor, like he's there to make sure that anyone who does anything wrong to her is punished or taken care of. However, when it comes to her making her own choices, uh, when it comes to her uh, basically stating what it is she wants from him, that's completely out the window. He takes no regard for her request whatsoever. Yeah, he even tells her you 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 work too much and you have to have more, you know, you have to make more time for yourself. But then when he t- when she tells him that she wants to go home to her family, yeah, you're right. He's like, "Well, pff, well those plans were meant to be broken, obviously." And he puts the plate in front of her and's trying to get her to eat this whatever the fuck it is, turkey and cranberries. He even made cranberries. Well, I was going to say when he starts shifting the conversation to like his loneliness and like love wanting love the idea of what love is supposed to be it's when you really kind of start to see his characters like i mean already you know he's he's cuckoo bananas because he's got a girl locked up to a table but she she busts out this whole idea of that she has a boyfriend and it's really i gotta say some quality acting on behalf of wes bentley's part because you can you can really see what's going on behind his eyes the whole, the, like I said, the neurotic tendencies really start to come into play. The jealousy, the irrational jealousy that he has over a woman who is in no way his to be jealous about whatsoever. Like this is not, this is not his girlfriend. This is not anyone who even, she doesn't even know him. You know, she this, she does not know this guy, and he has this mentality that like she's like his possession. And um, again, the concept of for this to have been written by a man. I got to say, this is a, a man who at least has a solid understanding of a strong female protagonist uh, going up against a force of 
what is a really kind of chauvinistic, kind of just a despicable display of male manhood at its worst. You get what I mean? And I, I, it makes sense to me that Alexander uh, Aha wrote this because he did a really uh, strong job with the, and I don't know if he wrote it, but at least he directed, um, Oh my God. Um, high tension. High tension. He, that's another film that really is a, like I would say a, a, in some ways, a strong female depiction, you know, even with the ending being what it is, strong female characters. He does a really good job with writing for the women he, he portrays in these films. Um, and I like that they just kind of show right off the bat how delusional and deranged this guy is because his viewpoint on this woman and how he treats her and what she is allowed to do and what she's allowed to say and how she's allowed to act. I mean, it's infuriating. <laughs> it makes me as a viewer so angry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was getting a little, yeah. I just wanted to reach through the, the screen and punch him when he was like so dismissive of her family Christmas plans. It's like, you fuckhead. It's like, because he's lonely on Christmas and has nobody to spend it to. He feels like she should have to be the same. Right. So dismissive of her, even to the to the point where when she tells him she's trying to get out of it again, I don't blame her. She tells him she has a boyfriend, right? And she's like, my boyfriend knows where I work. He's going to be here any minute to get me because I haven't shown up. And right away, he starts to snarkily question her about this so-called boyfriend. He's like, oh, how long have you guys been together? She's like, two years. He's like, oh, two years. He's like, that's not a boyfriend. That's, you know, that's wedding bells. You guys live together? And she's like, that's none of your fucking business. I love how she delivers that line. And and he's like, oh, that's not, that's, that's not proper talk for the dinner table. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, we live together. And he's like, well, what does he do? He's a journalist. Oh, yeah. He has to be smart. I knew he'd had to be smart. What's who, what, who's he write for? What's, what's he a journalist for? She says sports. He's like sports. What paper? New York post. I mean, she's there. It's like, they're spitting, you know, these responses. It's questioning. It's rapid fire question and answer. Uh, and she's definitely thinking on her feet because ultimately we find out sadly that she really doesn't have a boyfriend, but she's, she could rapid fire these responses back to him pretty quickly. Cause she, he's like, New York Post, he's like, I read that. He even asks a name. What's his name? She's like, Mark Clayton. Mark Clayton, I haven't heard that name. I read the post. So he goes over to grab a, a physical copy. She's like, no, 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 no. It's the online version. The way this escalates is just, it's genius. Yeah. Yes. It's, yeah. Yeah. And it's, again, it's it the is. intimate aspects of the scene. It really like, you get this whole, this whole dinner table. I say dinner table. This whole like office sequence where she's sitting there tied up. It's... It really takes its time to develop this unease between these two characters because this is what catapults the rest of the movie. And I love that they let this be a full moment. Like this is a really defined moment uh, where you learn a lot about both him and how off he is, but also about her. Like because eventually he turns this piece of the dialogue on her saying to her like, well, you're too busy to have a boyfriend. That's obviously not true. You know, he basically, he opens the door. He's like, where is he? He could be coming any minute, but he's not. Because he knows from having stalked her probably on every camera and on every form of social media and just doing all of his crazy neurotic uh, obsessing over her, he's probably knows a shit ton about her that she's not even aware of. And he turns that against her. 
he turns her lack of time for a relationship, her lack of time for her family relationship. I mean, this is so well played. Then he starts naming off her family members and like the tears start rolling down her face. And it's like a phenomenal performance from both, both individuals in the scene. But like, honestly, I'm surprised at this point, I am surprised that this film does not get more recognition just from moments like this alone, because they're expertly crafted. And yeah, when he starts naming her family members, she definitely, yeah, she loses it. It's it's the moment that she realizes, oh my God, this guy has been fucking stalking me. Uh, And he even, this guy has some balls because he even makes her call her family. And he's like, you're going to tell them that you can't make it. And and what, what excuse are you going to use? And at first he tells her, oh, just tell them that you made other plans. And he's like, no, I bet you you've you've used that excuse before, so you better think of something else. So he literally makes her call her sister while he's standing right there for her to tell her, her family that she's not going to make it. Oh, it's so hard to listen to and to watch as well for obvious reasons. But like the disappointment. Yeah, the sister is like, oh my God, not again, Angela. You really need to learn how to make time for your family and quit working so much. And they say, like, what about the the costume? As referring to the Santa costume that he was wearing earlier in the film, because obviously that was a costume that one of the family members was supposed to dress up in and surprise the kids. Um, and the the sisters just keeps voicing like her disappointment in her, how let down she is. And eventually, the mom gets on the phone, and because Angela is just she's totally breaking down at this point, but she's trying to remain composed through this phone conversation. And the mom even says, she's like, Oh, you sound terrible, honey. Are you sure you're okay? You're okay. And like the fact that because she's weeping over the phone, the mother thinks, Oh, she really is sick. She has to be sick. It, it's for you as the viewer, it's pretty heart wrenching. It's, 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 it's gut wrenching to be honest, because you, you are watching this kind of unfold and she's lying to the people she loves and listening to the disappointment in their voice. And meanwhile, he's coming up behind her and starts manhandling her and groping her. And it's like, it's so uncomfortable. He's like rubbing her neck and down her shoulders. It's, it's repulsive. Yeah. Uh, I got the impression that he was, he had her, he was putting his hands around her neck. So that to kind of steer her into not saying anything. You know, at any moment he could start choking her if she veered off and said, hey, I need help. This guy has me fucking tied into a tied up in his security office. That was my impression. But but then, yeah, he does move his hands down towards like towards her breast and stuff. It's pretty, pretty. uh, Yeah, it's very uncomfortable. Next, he has a Christmas present for her. Nice box, nice wrapping paper. She hesitantly opens it and it's a cassette tape. And he's like, you're going to love this. Just watch. Just watch this. He puts it in and it is security footage from one of the elevators of Jim, the man from the beginning of the film who came into her office to apologize, basically trying to sexually assault her on the elevator. Yeah, you see the severity of just how bad it was with Jim. And you're almost kind of shocked that she has decided to not take this to uh, like HR or something because like, I mean, he full on grabs her, tries to kiss her and she has to push herself off and basically like flee the elevator. And then you see him afterwards, like covering his mouth, like, Oh, what the fuck did I do? What I, what did I just do? You know? 
it is a pretty graphic video and it creates this really interesting sensation for the viewer is like i don't know how to feel here because she's the one that's being less affected i mean i don't want to say less affected but she's making choosing to take the high road in some aspects and forgive this guy shockingly enough and Wes bentley's character becomes so affected and so irate over it um it, it's it's such a strange approach to this topic. I had to like watch through the scene a few times because it just it, it creates this really weird. I don't want to say sensation, but like as the viewer, it, it's a it's like unusually uncomfortable. It's a really hard pill to swallow. Does that make sense? It does. It does because yeah, the the aggressiveness that this Jim character had definitely warrants more of a. Uh, consequence, yeah. Then just being able to go to her office and have her accept his apology. Oh yeah, and it's it's little moments like that where I, you know, she is played off as pretty much a strong character for the most part that makes pretty good decisions and stuff. But it is that one moment at the beginning of the film when she does just accept his apology that it does show that she has some uh, obvious. She's not as strong in certain situations. Right. I think when it comes to her career, she's not going to do anything that's going to cause any ripple in her career. Yeah, but I, I do want to also say, like, in this situation, I, I think what, what is so interesting to me is, like, I don't know who to hate more. Do I want to hate the guy, Jim, who's done this to her? Or do I want to hate Wes Bentley's character for what he's putting her through now? Because he thinks he's, like, being all high and mighty and knight in shining armor, you know, whereas really he's doing the exact same thing only 10 times worse to her. So, but he has this arrogance about it. So it makes you just hate him more. But technically I want to see both of these guys get their comeuppance because they're both shitty fucking human beings. But it's just, it's such a weird, like, you know, I'm trying to like hint towards what's going to happen with Jim without giving it away. I want to see Jim get what he deserves. However, this this movie still manages to make me feel sorry for this guy, and it's impressive that it can do that. I guess is what I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give away the full load here. I don't want to shoot it all over the listeners' faces. But something's about to happen to Jim. But this movie still manages to manipulate how I feel about it to to make me feel sorrow for him and sympathy for him, even though he's a pretty disgusting person. Because it's because what happens to him is overtly brutal. And we also can't say with Angela's character, like one thing we don't know is, yes, she accepted the apology in the office, but she accepted it in a very like kind of like standoffish way. Who's to say that she doesn't plan on taking action eventually against this? You know what I mean? Like who's to say that we don't know her actual intentions with Jim. She just said what she had to say to keep the peace in the moment without making things any more awkward, you know? Yeah. Although I I do think she was sincere in accepting the apology because of the next scene. Um, anyway, so at this point, she even asks, she asks Thomas, why the fuck are you showing this to me? And he's like, people like this, they think that they can just do this to a a woman and get away with it. Well, I'm going to show them. And he's like, you want to go for a stroll? And so he unlocks her, the, the cuffs from her feet. But while he's down there unlocking him, she does do something that is a little, you know, she's trying to fight back. She picks up a fork and stabs him in the shoulder with it. 
I would have stabbed him in the neck, but she stabs him in the shoulder with it. Uh, she tries to flee, but he gets he gets a hold of her pretty quick because let's be honest, a fork is not going to do much. It doesn't even really phase him, honestly. He's like, oh, what'd you do that for? I mean. Yeah, I give her credit for trying. <laughs> I give her credit for trying, but I mean, you should always go for the neck. Always go for Absolutely. the neck. Absolutely. Something vital. Go for the neck or the eyes. Yeah. Well, oof. we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. I, I find it creepy that when, after she stabs him, he kind of just blows it off. Like, he he doesn't even process the fact, like, he's, you know, he's annoyed by it. But he kind of just keeps going on with his plan unfazed. Yeah, he doesn't, you know, I was thinking that he was going to like, like, I was thinking, oh, bitch, you're going to get it now. Like, I thought he was going to like beat her or do something. Doesn't even hit her. Doesn't do anything. The only thing he does to get her under control is handcuff her. Yeah. And then he, he takes her out to his car and says they're going for a ride. Yeah, he starts to ramble on to her about how many times he's watched her leave through this garage and you realize like how long he's been fixating on our, on her and how long he's had to have been planning this. And it is like little moments like this, the little dialogue moments like this are extremely um, unsettling, uncomfortable, because you realize that this is a fixation that has developed over a very long period of time. Yeah, he even says, I've watched you leave this garage so many times. It's, it's kind of surreal now to have you in the car with me. It's like, oh, <laughs> but they're, they're driving to the bottom floor of the parking ramp. And she's like, Thomas, where are we going? And he's like, oh, I'm just taking you for a little, for a little drive. I'm going to show you your, your, your real present. And as they get down to the bottom floor to like the dead end, they see, or she sees Jim fucking duct taped to a office chair. Oh my God. Horror fans, let's just say if you have felt that this project, this film has been a slow burn up to this point, just hold on because it's about to pay off in spades. My first question is how long has, how long has poor fucking Jim been tied up down there? Because <laughs> there has been so much that has transpired over the last few, I'm assuming like two hours. This guy's just been sitting down there tied to this chair, screaming with his face tied up, taped up, like, you know, it, I, it's just, there's these little details throughout the movie that really just make it clear just how batshit Tom's character actually is. And for me, the idea that like literally Jim has to have been down there for a matter of hours and has not been addressed at all. Like he's literally just left him down there like a, like a fucking animal tied to a chain. You know, it's, it's, it's so unsettling. Well, and it shows the pre-planning. Yep. Yes, that, exactly. Yeah. That went that went into this whole evening. I think it started from the minute her car would mysteriously not start. Uh everything was pre-planned out by by uh Thomas. And I mean, think about it. yeah, Jim left the office well well before she did. So obviously he was abducted and tied to this chair, you know, at that moment. Uh, as he left, but he's, yeah, he's been down there quite a, quite a while. Of course she is freaking out. She's like, Oh my God, Thomas, what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, this is your present. Um, I want you to take this flashlight and go teach him a lesson. And he's like, w-. she's like, what are you talking about? What lesson do you want me to teach him? And he's like that you're not a slut and that he can't get away with touching with any woman that he wants. Um, and she's yeah the, that line specifically tell him you're not teach him you're not a slut 
Um, he uses these specific bits of dialogue towards her, almost against her at certain points, to uh, talk down to her in certain ways that all the more like anger and enrage me um, and make me hate his character because he constantly is so high and mighty. He's constantly talking about how he's there to like help her, but then he'll, he'll call her a slut or say that, uh, do you want this? Do you want him to do this kind of thing to you? Were you cheating with him? You know, it's, Oh my God, I hate Tom so much. <laughs> yeah. She, he's like, did you fuck him to get him in a promotion? Because she is pleading with him not to do this. She's like, Tom, you, you don't understand. He apologized. And he's like, oh, he apologized. So that just makes it right, right? He's a, I've seen him touch every woman in the office like this. He's a pervert. Do we think that's a true statement? Uh, or no, do we think he's I, manipulating the conversation? I think he's, I think he's manipulating her. Yeah, because he's done this with her a few times already. He's, he's said a few things to kind of like try to like – get her on his side or like manipulate things to like get her more enraged and it's not working, but it just shows how like twisted his character is. I don't know, man. Um, the, the, the fact that she openly states to him that she's, she's forgiven him. And it really, again, it, it portrays her as a very moral figure. Just, it triggers him more, which is even more kind of like mind boggling because uh, his first real break, like he's, you know, he's shown that he's crazy, but you haven't seen his rage yet up until this point. But his first real break into rage is right now in the car in front of her. And it's minor compared to what we get get over the course of the rest of the movie. But he has this one more moment where he just screams at her, uh, stop using my name, stop using my name. You know, he has these little moments where he kind of just breaks. And um, again, character is really well played performance is phenomenal but it's such a it's such an interesting mentality um the character of tom the things that trigger him the things that cause him to snap the things that she says that make him unusually upset her saying that she has forgiven this guy causes him to flip his shit well he explodes at her yeah he totally explodes at her for calling him saying his name and he's like i know what you're trying to do you're trying to humanize yourself and i keep telling you i'm not gonna fucking hurt you so quit saying my fucking name i mean he it fucking pisses him off that she says his name um he's like i just want to help you and finally she's like you know what i'll do it just untie me and uh, i'll do it and he considers it for a moment and he's like, oh, no, you can't do it because you're a good person. I'm going to have to do it. So he gets out of the car and approaches poor Jim with this flashlight and is like, you Ivy League motherfucker, motherfuckers think you can do whatever you want without there any consequences. Why do you think you can hit, touch any woman that doesn't want you? And she is screaming at him from the, the car to stop. And as he raises the flashlight to hit Jim, she like screams, please, Thomas, no. And he stops and kind of looks back at her and then looks at, looks at Jim. And he's like, oh, I don't know. She doesn't want me to do this. And he looks like he's going to walk away. But then all of a sudden he turns and just beats this guy in the fucking face with this flashlight. Oh, uh, it's such a well-handled shot. The first beat to the head because Jim turns his head back to the camera and you see you literally see the cut open up and blood just start pouring down his head and it's like 
ugh, it's so gross. And obviously it just gets worse from there. But up to this point, like, there's a few things about Jim, and this character really doesn't do a ton in the movie other than have that one scene and die, and the VHS, or the videotape of what um, what's recorded in the cameras. But they've been really, really specific and selective about what they've disclosed about this character. And one of the things that he did say in his dialogue when he apologized to Angela, he's like, you know, I have a family. I really, I didn't mean this. I have a family. I have a wife that I love. Um, and and she kind of brings that back up. She's like, he has a family. You know, she's trying to find ways to make Tom have some form of like remorse or sympathy. And he is just completely immune to it. And he just unleads, unleashes so much rage and anger into this beating. I mean, he is just unloading on this guy and he starts pummeling him in the head. His face is like a pulp by the time that he's done. But there's so much uh rage in this character of Tom. It's it's so again well played, but also just like, ugh, it's 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 really a, a really terrifying depiction of of someone who is just unwell, you know? Yeah, poor poor Jim is still conscious after this relentless, massive beating to the face with this flashlight. He's still conscious. Because uh Thomas gets back in the car with uh, Angela and starts the car and pulls, starts pulling, driving right towards Jim. And she's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He's like, Oh, I'm just going to take him for a little ride. So he goes right up against him and stops. And all of a sudden then just floors it. And poor Jim is just helpless on this office chair as the car is pushing him full speed and smashes him against the fucking wall of the parking garage. It is so disgusting. You see his guts basically, oh, his guts explode out of his stomach. Oh, it's disgusting. So It's so realistic looking. Yeah. This scene is one of the few moments of real violence, like gore violence over the course of the movie. There's a lot of stalking throughout the film. There's a lot of hide and seek. But when you get violence, it is really graphic. And this is definitely like the standout scene in the film. But my God, like... For a movie with such minor body count, I'm shocked that they opted to go so graphic when they actually did show it. Because this movie isn't dependent on the gore. It's not dependent on the violence. They just chose to to show it. And um, it really is absolutely repulsive, like what they show. Like he gets, the car bashes into him a couple times. The first time you see his, and he's still conscious, his intestines are hanging out of him. But he looks up and he sees it one final time. And then, yeah, you see the rib cage like completely sticking out of his torso. And it is just horrifying. Yeah, the third time his head explodes and like splatters on the window, the windshield. And at this moment, she was able to get free. She opens the door and escapes the car and and takes off running. Uh, which good for her. Uh, and uh, this is basically the moment when the film really turns into uh, a cat and mouse game, right? Because she's, yeah. she's free and she does a smart thing. She runs back to the security office to get her phone from her, her backpack or her purse. Of course, she has to fight Rocky who grabs her, her purse. And it's kind of a tug of war before she gets it away from him and gets her phone. And, and she's also smart enough to grab his key cards too. She is, I mean, we did one of our our top uh, final girls back a couple months ago on our Patreon. And I got to say, I considered having her on the list. 
Um, and and she's definitely like would be a, a pretty high up runner up for me in the sense that this character is very resourceful. This character makes a lot of very smart decisions, uh, a very realistic portrayal of somebody in a, in a really like horrifying situation. But every time she makes a decision, it, when she fucks up, it seems rational because it's a spur of the moment kind of scenario. But oftentimes she makes smart choices. And you're right. She also, when she takes off running, the moment she gets into a, a place of shadow, she squats down and she she brings her arms up so that her hands are no longer handcuffed behind her. They're in front of her Uh, because she's handcuffed for most of the film, but at least she thinks to immediately get her hands in front of her. She also runs to a street vent and starts screaming through the vent for people to hear her, but she's so far below ground. They're not hearing it, but she's looking for any opportunity she can find to make contact with people. Oh yeah. She runs to the gate uh, and, and is screaming and also trying to get a signal with her cell phone. But I do like that as she's screaming, there's, there is this old bag lady that almost steals the show <laughs> that's pushing her card of, of, of belongings and just like, help me, help me. Somebody's trying to kill me. Just mocking her. Oh my I'm God. Like, I could have, I could have spent some more time with this bag lady. Yeah. Add her to the kill count. That fucking broad. <laughs> but, um, that, that gate sequence. Oh my God. Like give this girl a fucking break. She's. She drops the phone, so she's trying to reach for it, and she loses a goddamn nail. Oh. oh, God, it made my fucking butthole tighten up. It looks so painful. But she finally gets the call to go through to the police, and she's screaming through the gate, trying to give her information to the police. Um, but her wrist, because of her handcuffs, her wrists become, like, stuck in the gate for a moment. Like, she's trying to, like, maneuver them out of the little hole. And as this is happening, you see Tom approaching in the background. With Rocky. Yeah, you know what? Let me say something about Rocky real real quick. I don't like seeing animals die on camera. Ever. I'm going to give this animal an exception because fuck this dog. This dog's a fucking piece of shit. Uh, everything this dog does is unlikable. And you know what? I like that this dog in, it gets its comeuppance because he's a piece of shit and he's a, <laughs> fucking ba- he's a bad boy. Well, I mean, you have to put yourself in that scenario when it happens. What would you do? Yeah. You know? Oh, come on. I mean, like, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not like it's like a helpless animal like Michael Myers kills in Halloween. Uh, what's that? Uh, Lester? Poor Lester. He wasn't doing anything. But, you know, this dog, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but she actually sees Thomas approach and she's stuck. Her, her hands are stuck in the gate. So you think shit, he's going to get her. But as he turns the corner, she's gone. Uh, she's able to get her hands unstuck just in time. She runs to the elevator to get on the elevator. And, you know, the elevator, she's trying to use the the buttons and the key card and stuff to, to, to make the elevator go up and down. And she gets it closed. And it goes up a floor and it opens just in time to see fucking Thomas in the doorway. Just look at just her with a blank at expression. <laughs> and then he comes in. She shuts the elevator door again, just in time. And again, this girl is smart because what she does is something I would probably do because I would think I would be safe is she hits, she hits the stop button. Yeah. Between floors on the elevator so that you can't, so that nobody can get in or out. Right. You're, you're on the elevator. You're in a safe spot. That's what I'd be thinking. Yeah. Then she uses the call button and actually someone answers her on the call button and is talking in like this accent and asking her. It's like a, yeah, it's like an Indian man. Yeah, 
Yeah. And she's, uh, she's trying to tell him where, where she's at. And he, she's like, you got to help me. This guy, he, 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 he's trying to kill me and he just, he already killed somebody tonight. And the voice is like, Oh, did you see him kill the person? And she's like, yes. Will you please fucking call the police? And, and all of a sudden the voice starts to change a little bit and it's like, Oh, are you sure? Are you sure he's not trying to help you? Oh my God. Troy, the fact that not only is Tom like killing people and like basically and a set, like, let's be honest, he's a sexist. He thinks he's doing all these things to help a woman, but he's fucking tying them up and demanding they love him. He's a horrible person. He's also a racist. And he, <laughs> and he, he impersonates a, 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 like an Indian man uh, only to, to, you know, cover up that he's actually him and he persuades the conversation to go a certain way. Uh, he's a casual racist. I, I think he's a piece of shit. What a horrible person. Yeah, and he starts just basically telling her all the shit that there's, there's nowhere to go. Where are you going to go? If you get out, we should just, you should just come out and and hang out with me because you'll grow to like me because you know, when two people go through a traumatic situation together, that's what happens. I'm like, fuck you. What traumatic situation are you going through? Motherfucker. You're the one that kidnapped this girl. I know you're causing it. You are the reason it's happening. she She just covers in the corner and tries to block it out. And she's like, I'm staying in this fucking elevator and I'm calling 911 and you're going to get yours. And then she just tries to block it out. <sighs> His dumbass cuts to, well, it cuts to some footage. I think this is actually pretty creepy. And it's another cool technique they use a few times over the course of the movie is you see the footage of her cowering through his, through his um, monitor screens. And you see like his monitors cut, like he could see basically all, all floors of the, the parking garage all levels. He can see into the building. Uh, he's like omnipresent. And it really establishes just how invasive he is, uh, how much he can see everything she's doing, every plot she's trying to come up with to escape. He, he can watch her and see her in most any area that she's in within this garage. Yeah, it is. It's really creepy. He has He has access to pretty much the whole garage, the whole office building to know where she's at at any time. But you know what? He is, we got to say, he's pretty smart too, because what does this fucker do? Oh my God. He gets a goddamn fire hose, drops it down the elevator shaft, turns it on full blast and lets it begin flooding the elevator car that she's in. Yeah. And like, when you think of the situation, like this is a frigid, cold parking garage in the middle of what is a like wintry, it's like a Midwestern town. This ain't like Miami. Like she's shivering. She's in that little white dress. She's freezing her fucking ass off as water just pours on her. I know I was getting fucking cold. She doesn't know what to do. I mean, it's, it's coming down pretty quickly and the the elevator shaft is filling up with water, but all of a sudden the fucking ceiling collapses and Carl, what did Carl do? But his dead ass body falls through the ceiling of the elevator. Yeah. Oh my God. It just adds to the fucking like shock of everything because you realize like Tom is really just out to kill anybody who could in any way interfere with his plan whatsoever. And he has like no regard for these people or like what involvement they have. Like Carl didn't do anything wrong. Like I, it makes no sense, but at the same time, like, yeah, you're right. Tom ain't stupid. Like his plot is pretty genius and it's really, I think it's meant to scare her out more than anything, you know? But like when you think of what could happen, she could either freeze to death, be drowned, 
be electrocuted or the elevator could collapse and she could plummet to her death. Like this plan is foolproof. Tom is not dumb. Yeah, I felt bad for Carl. He didn't do anything. He just wanted to get home to see his grandbabies open their presents for Christmas. Ugh, poor guy. She's able to un, un, unstop the elevator though, so the doors actually open. And I love this because they both the her her and Carl like f- splash out and smash up against the wall. And she tries to get Carl to come too, but it's obviously he's he's not he's not alive. And, and she has no choice but to take off running in this soaked dress. December 24th, New York City, parking garage. You know it has to be freezing. And she is shivering. She runs into the garage. She hears uh, Thomas call her name. And she runs and hides under a, a, a car, a vehicle that's in the parking garage. However, as Thomas comes out into the garage, he notices her wet footprints and where they lead. So he knows right. He knows where she's at, and he goes right to that vehicle and is pretending he doesn't know where she's at. As he's screaming at her, telling her, "Where are you gonna go? If you get out of here, it's freezing cold, Angela. What are you gonna do? There's nowhere to go." And to prove to her that he knows where she's at, he begins popping, stabbing the tires of this vehicle so that it lowers each time. One thing I got to say about this movie is like the horror genre is oftentimes a tired genre. We see a lot of the same things happen time and time again in different films, you know, just done in different ways. Um, And, you know, we see a lot of the same kind of scenarios that people are put in that they have to escape. This movie is filled with a lot of originality um, even down to the simplicity of like, she's hiding under this car and he starts popping the tires and the car starts tilting. Like, it's going to, like, if she doesn't move, she's going to get crushed, you know? Like it's, it's such a simple setup, but it's, it's very believable. It's very realistic. And it's, it's makes for a really just a simple, but horrifying scenario. And I really appreciate that this movie comes up with lots of unique and original scenarios to put the protagonist in that she has to be resourceful and escape from because honestly this whole movie it really is just one elongated series of sequences proving just how smart and resourceful and intellectual angela is yeah so she is smart and she rolls out from under the car and takes off running Uh, and um he goes to carl's body and we see that Carl obviously has been smashed in the head with something because there's a big old bloody gouge on his head. And he's like, way to ruin Christmas, Carl. Poor fucking Carl. Oh, my God. What did Carl do? He didn't ruin Christmas. Uh, and now he goes back and he's doing his Elvis dance. We have to say he's obsessed with Elvis, too. Yes. Yes, very much so. So he does his little Elvis routine to Elvis's song, Blue Christmas. She is, in the meantime, breaks out the um, fire extinguisher glass to get the axe, to get the fire axe. And she starts breaking all of the security, axing all of the security cameras when he's not paying attention because he's too busy doing his hip hip sway into, to Elvis Presley. Now she's such a fucking badass, man. Like, bitch got an axe, and she's immediately acting upon it like good for her very much deserves surviving this film (laughs) i'll say that 
So as he goes back out to the office, she goes back in to the security office with the axe. And there is a tape playing. And it is of Thomas. It must have been earlier in the evening, obviously, when he after he first kidnaps her, putting makeup on her, telling her how beautiful she is, how much he loves her. And he's literally feeling her breasts and like up up her dress while she's unconscious. Oh my God, this sick fuck. Oh God, this whole movie is just chock full of moments of men thinking they can take advantage of these women. Well, and I'm thinking, dude, this is the same dude that you were just, you just killed a guy for doing exactly, if not worse, what you're doing. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to watch. These moments are very hard to watch. And... Uh, it makes her so irate, but understandable. Like what she does here is not necessarily the smartest thing she does, but she gets so affected by this that she takes the axe and she destroys the TV and she's screaming. But like, I get it. I fucking, I fucking get it. Like to see, to witness this unfolding in front of you, this footage of you yourself being manhandled by this guy who is, you know, already done awful things to you. But the fact that on top of that, he probably raped you as well. Like, Man, oh, it just makes you hate his character so much more, even more than I thought I could, you know? Yeah, well, it wasn't a very smart move because it drew attention to where she was because at the same time, she actually sees two police officers in a car, cop car pull up to the um, parking garage gate. And as she's ready to get their attention, he comes. Thomas comes up behind her and tases her. Oh my God. And after he tasers her, she's like, she passes out and he says, it's okay. It's okay. As he like grabs her and like lowers her to the ground. Like he's like comforting her right after fucking tasing her. It's just sick, man. It's so sick. And he tases her again. Yeah. Just to make sure she's out cold. Yeah. He's like, I got to go do this. So I'm sorry. And he tases her again. He goes down to meet the cops. The cops said they're just responding to a, a disturbance call and they, they come into the garage to look around. And it does provide us some, you know, a, it provides us a nice little break from the, I don't want to say monotony because it's not boring. Like none of this film is boring to me, but it does provide us a little break from the the cat and mouse game, right? Yeah. And, and gives us kind of as the audience a, a, a sh- sh- little glimmer of hope that maybe something is going to become of these cops being here, but it doesn't really lead anywhere. They they drive through the the garage. Angela wakes up, and now we realize she is in the locked in the back of her trunk, her her own car. She's in the trunk, right? And she she comes to and she hears like she knows the cops are there. She can hear their their vehicle driving through. She's screaming, trying to get their attention, but obviously they don't hear her. Uh, the cops make their rounds and they go back up to the office and ask Thomas, "Hey, are you sure you haven't seen anything weird?" Um. He's like, no, everything's been calm here. And he's playing uh, he's playing a record album. And they're like, hey, you having a party in there? Are you expecting anybody? He's like, oh, no, I couldn't have anybody over. The, the, the company would fire me. And the one police officer like comes real close to try to get a look in. And you do see this moment where Thomas grabs the axe that's kind of on the other side of the doorway. But luckily, the police officer backs off. He's like, all right, we're going to go. You have a good evening. And Thomas is like, hey, I'll take the stairs and I'll meet you down at the gate. Up to this point, I I have a few little things I want to acknowledge with how this has built up to this point. Um, It's so interesting to me in regards to Tom, how he can 
immediately fall back into being like charming and sociable and like when he's making the small talk and banter with the cops like he seems unfazed by everything that's happened and he's like he's at this point he washed the blood off of his face he changed his shirt real quick um and he just seems he's seemingly normal and natural which is one of the scariest aspects of his character i think because he he's completely aware of what he's doing but he can crack jokes and chit chat with these guys and completely lie his way out of the situation and they just they buy it um, and it's a really nice full circle moment because when he does put on the Christmas album, it's, it's Santa baby. And it's where we began with the film. The start of the movie begins with the moment of her car, kind of the pan around the car and her trying to break out. He puts on that album to cover up her screams from the trunk so they can't hear her. And it really is a very nice full circle moment. Like, and we're back to the beginning of where we started, you know? Yeah, and you know, I got to say, you know, I, I would trust this guy too, because he looks very trustworthy. I mean, this is a young guy. This isn't some, you know, this isn't some big muscular, intimidating dude. This is, you know, I mean, it's Wes Bentley for crying out loud. I mean, I'd be very trust trusting of him too. And I think that's where his his physicality comes into play. His being attractive actually does benefit the story overall because he um yeah, he looks like someone like if you saw him on the streets, like you wouldn't be intimidated by him. You wouldn't look at him and think he had a reason to be lying about something like this. Because he looks charming and handsome and very much like somebody who you would think, Oh, I can trust this guy. Well, he's yeah, he's sexy. He's sexy. Um you know, I, I would not be intimidated by him. Uh, but she go he he actually meets the cops at the gate and is letting them out at the same time. Angela was able to get her crowbar from her trunk and, and bust open the trunk, which is the scene that we see at the opening of the film, as you mentioned. And she just rips the trunk open, pops out, uh, and takes off running towards the gate just as the cops pull away. Oh, my God, Trey. I've got to say one of the most interesting choices with the film in the sense of breaking the kind of usual um, standard formula of with these cops, when they introduce them, like when you see them, you're like, oh, fuck, these two fuckers, they are just going to be added to the body count. Like these guys are just here to die. Um, That's completely the purpose of bringing them into the situation. What a smart kind of maneuver to have these guys. Like they drive through the whole location. There's so many little moments where you think like, oh, fuck, these two are fucked. They're definitely going to get killed. And then they they basically like, okay, well, everything looks fine. All right, have a good night. And they drive off. And like, not only did they choose to not kill these guys, which is totally like what you're expecting, but also like the poor girl, like she, she gets out, she manages to make it to the gate. She almost gets their attention. She almost gets away, but she, she just arrives just in time to see them drive off. It's such like a moment of frustration. You're like you as a viewer, you're like infuriated. You're like, oh my God, give this girl a break, you know? Yeah, I was, I was, and I totally thought that these two cops were going to get killed, but they don't, they don't. She runs to the gate and it's shot. The cops are pulled away. And then all of a sudden fucking Thomas steps out from behind one of the pillars with Rocky. And they have this, it's a silent moment. There's no dialogue between them. It's all facial expressions. Like she looks at him in shock. He looks at her. He grins, looks down at Rocky looks back up at her again and grins. And then you see her face. There's a moment of realization about what's about to happen. And what does he do? He fucking unhooks Rocky and sicks him on her. And, and Rocky starts chasing her and she runs. And actually she busts the window of, of a car to get into the back seat for protection. 
And there's kind of a moment of silence before Rocky comes charging through the, through the broken window, trying to get at her. Uh, it's really just brutal. Uh, he, he bites her leg and she has no choice. Like you said, we hate to see animals get killed in in movies, but come on. What what else was she going to do? She takes the crowbar and stabs him through the neck with it. Oh my God. Not only does she stab him, she first beats him over and over. Like she's beating the fuck out of this dog. And then she finally jams it into his skull. And then he like comes back for one final like, and she stabs him again. And like, again, I gotta say this girl is kind of unstoppable. I fucking love that about her. I, yeah, I hate seeing a dog die, but like, fuck this dog. Um, and even like the way the sequence starts off though, like, Again, a very masterfully played out sequence. That slow motion buildup, that silent slow motion, like, you know this is about to launch into a big manic frenzy. But it's like, you see the whole thing when she starts to realize, holy shit, he's going to let that dog after me. I got to get the fuck out of here. They're really, like, intricate about how they pace it. And then it just launches into this big, frantic chase sequence. And she, when she busts that window open, she's like, I have no other fucking choice. I got to do this. I don't know where else the fuck I'm going to go. Like, I think she's just such a good fucking heroine, man. I love her. I love her. Yeah. Yeah. The dog, you know what? We can be mad that the dog got killed, but what would you do in this situation? There's not nothing you could do. This dog was going to kill her blood. She's now she's covered in blood from the dog. So we have her in this white dress drenched in water, now drenched in blood. She gets out of the car and goes over to the um, rental car office which honestly she should have gone there a lot sooner maybe she didn't know it was there but she works here so you would think she would know that there is a rental car office in this parking garage i'm like when she went over there that was my first thought is like okay this has been here the whole time why haven't you gone over there a lot sooner because you could have got out but she goes finally gets into it and she's trying to, she goes in, shuts the door. She gets behind the counter, trying to call the police. Of course, they're saying there's a hold because it's the holidays. In the meantime, when she's on the phone, she goes through and she finds, she just gra- starts grabbing keys to the different rental cars until she, she gets one that she wants. And again, nobody's answering uh, from the police station. Thomas now comes down looking for her and finds Rocky dead. And of course he loses it, loses it. Why would you do that? He's just a defenseless animal. Yes, he's an animal that tore into the flesh of my thigh, you motherfucker. Like, oh my God, this guy is just so fucking like oblivious to reality. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, he's, I was, when he said that, I kind of chuckled. This, how could you kill a defenseless animal? I'm like, the dude, you sick the animal on her to kill her. I mean, good grief. Oh my God. In the meantime, he does see her bloody hand print on the door of the rental car place. So he goes in to look for her. Obviously she's not there anymore, but he does see that the phone is off the hook and puts it to his ear and he hears 911 on the other end. They're like, 911, what's your emergency? Can you, can you, can you speak? Please let us know. And obviously he just kind of looks in disbelief and he says, you're trying to get me fired, huh? Aren't you? I'm like, oh my God, this dude, not only is he's just delusional. His grasp of reality is just fucking gone. Like he is so yeah, irrational. 
Um, and he's following this trail of blood, like teasing her with the taser, like flickering it, you know, like, oh, he's, he's so detestable. Oh, yeah, that fucking taser. And as he's looking for, he see he, he comes across a door that has a piece of her white dress sticking out of it. So he goes to this door, opens it. She's not there. But oh, but she has that piece of dress planted in there. She, see, this bitch is smart. He, yeah, he opens that. She's not there, but all of a sudden she busts out of the door next to it and sprays him the eye with I don't know what. I don't know if it's Lysol, it I Lysol, think? or some sort of aerosol cleaner or something. Sprays him in the eye with it and, and takes off running to the car that she actually uh, got the keys for because she's hitting the um, the she's hitting the car key to hear the beep you know yeah and not only that she takes the crowbar that she's been using to defend herself up to this point and she jams it in the door so he's locked in the office he can't chase after her i mean again this girl is fucking on it yeah she gets in it in the car and starts it and, and immediately he's back in the thing throwing a fit he's like screaming and picking up chairs and throwing them around until he actually finds a chair to bust out uh the the window the car window or the, I'm sorry, not the car window, the, the car rental window busts that out and goes after her, but she's in the car speeding down the, through the parking garage. And I'm like, bitch, slow down and drive rationally. I mean, I know you're, you're kind of, you know, everything that's happened to you, you're, you're obviously adrenaline's pumping and shit, but you got trying to go 80 miles an hour through a parking ramp is not going to end. Well, well, not only that, but she also has her hands, you know, still cuffed. So she can't do a full like control of the wheel. So like she's speeding and she's also like struggling to like take turns. So it makes like, she's slamming the car into walls and everything scraping and causing sparks. Yeah. She needs to simmer down. Slow down, slow down. He's not going to catch it. Take it easy. Slow down. But she does it. And as she uh, gets to the bottom of the ramp towards the gate, he fucking pulls out in front of her. He T-bones her. Yes, and, smashes yeah, smashes right into her. But it doesn't stop her. Like, she just gets right back to driving. Like, she's like, she will not be stopped. She is getting the fuck out of this parking garage. <laughs> yeah, yo, she speeds. She backs up, speeds away, and goes back around. But then there's this moment where she's heading down the, the ramp and he is at the other end of the, 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 the rampway facing her. And there's this moment where they're just stopped in their car, staring at each other. Yeah, they're going to play chicken. They're going to play chicken. And she but is she's like, let's fucking go. Come on. <laughs> yeah, she, she does it. She gets all ready and she's like, let's do this. You chicken shit. And they speed they speed toward each other, full force, full force. And he's the one that fucking last minute, last second, not minute, last second, pusses out and swerves to the side and she just plows right through. Yeah. And he's, she's like, yeah, woohoo, woohoo. Yeah. The little, that fucking put, he is a pussy. He, yeah. He's the one that swerves away at the last minute. However, she loses control of the vehicle, of course. Because the bitch and- is going 90 miles an hour through a fucking parking garage. <laughs> The car flips over and it flips in a way that it lands like right side up, which I mean, like that's a brutal, like <laughs> you see that car flip. It's like, dun, dun, dun. And it lands like right side up. And the whole thing is like dented in and everything like this poor thing. She has been through the, the whole gamut. Luckily she put her seatbelt on like right before that accident sequence. She do see her clicker seatbelt just in case. And that is the only reason she survives this accident. Seatbelts do save lives. 
people. Yeah. Well, he approaches her car. He goes up to her and she's faces against the steering wheel. The horns blasting full blast. He kind of pushes her head back and she looks like she's totally uh, unconscious. And he's like, here, let me help you. And he's like, I'll get you out of here. And he's like trying to get her out. And as he's reaching down, all of a sudden she comes to and brings the fucking, what is it? It's like a scalpel or something. Or is it the screwdriver from the the kit earlier? It's a screwdriver or something she got from the, from the car rental. And she fucking stabs him in the eyeball. And she says, help me. Why don't you let me help you for a change? It's like, yes, bitch. Yes. (laughs) But can we talk about how graphic this eyeball stab is? Oh my God. His eye is like all swelling up and puffing up around it. It's so disgusting. I mean, it shows, but no, but it shows the screwdriver go inside of his eyeball. Like it shows it. And then it shows him pull it out and you can see how far it went in. Oh, he he would be dead. He would be dead. I, yeah. And she, she gets, uh, this bitch wastes no time because she gets on him. She starts strangling him with the handcuffs. And this is when she's like, yeah, let me help you for once. And she strangles him unconscious and then handcuffs him to the um, steering wheel of the car, of his car. And then he's like, starts to come to, he's like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Listen, motherfucker, you just tried to take me captive and force me into a relationship against my will. I'm doing exactly what you think I'm fucking doing. I'm going to kill your ass. <laughs> well, then he starts to reason with her. He's like, I just want to be friends. Oh, that's all I wanted. I'm so sorry for everything I've done. I just wanted a friend. Why can't we be friends? I'm so lonely. He keeps like bringing up the idea that he's like lonely, that he has nobody. And I'm like, listen, fucker. Like, I get it, but this is not the way to go about creating relationships in your life. No. And she's ignoring him. And he's not very happy. And this is when he's like, are you listening to me, you stupid fucking cunt? Oh, that was the wrong thing to say to this to this dame. That was the wrong thing to say to this badass bitch because she... <laughs> has had enough her facial, <laughs> her facial expression completely changes she turns around towards him takes the taser lowers it to the ground there's a gas puddle that has because the car obviously got hit so there's a gas puddle that's has emerged from the car towards her and she takes the taser presses it against the gas thing so the taser lights and lights the gas pedal and says have a merry christmas thomas and the fire goes towards him and he's, he's screaming, no, 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 no. And he's fucking engulfed in flames. And then on top of that, as his, as he's screaming, completely visible, covered in flames, uh, the car blows the fuck up. Like the engine blows up and he is dead. Like Thomas is definitely dead. And you know what? After all this fucking shit, good. Because he's a shit fucking person. And he put this poor, beautiful woman through horrible, horrible things. And I can't think of a more satisfying ending I've seen in a while. Like, yeah, this girl went through some shit, but she does exactly what I fucking wanted her to do. She kills him in a horrible, brutal fashion, and I feel great about it. Yeah, it's a satisfying ending. She ends up being, yeah, I mean, he picked the wrong girl. The wrong girl. But I'm thinking, God, if I mean, I think anybody, if, you would, if they would have been put through this, you know, what? I would probably do the same thing. I mean, but you know what? I mean, if he would have just shut his mouth, 
you know, she was more than prepared. She was just going to keep him handcuffed to his car and probably walk in, and get the police. If you would have just shut his fucking mouth, he wouldn't have been burned alive. Yeah. But I also don't think that this character is capable of comprehending when to shut his mouth. You know, I mean, as we've seen, he does not understand that he is in the wrong, which is a part of the reason he's such an insufferable character to watch um, in, in a good way, because it makes you hate him. You want to see him die. But I mean, in, the, in the sense of just who he is and how he operates, my God, I can't think of a more detestable character that I've seen in a while. You know, um, I haven't watched this movie in a long fucking time and revisiting it. Um, I actually own it on DVD and I just I hadn't thought to watch it in so long. But God, revisiting it, these two characters um, really make make for a rather brilliant duo in this cat and mouse scenario. And when she finally does get the upper hand and when she wins the day, man, it is like a it's like a fists to the air kind of fuck yes celebration moment because he just he's repulsive. He is a horrible fucking person. And I love the fact that he dies so horribly. Yes. Burning alive would not be fun. Uh, but the film ends with her getting out of the parking ramp and just walking down the street. It's morning now and snowing and she just walks off through downtown as police officer or police cars and fire trucks speed towards the, uh, the parking ramp and the screen goes black, but you do hear uh, a car pull up to her and ask her if she's all right. So, you know, she's going to be okay at least. As she's leaving, you do see this moment where all of the um, the sprinklers go off because the garage is on fire now. <laughs> I'm like, can this poor woman not be dry for a goddamn fucking second? Like, she is going to die. She is going to die from hypothermia. Like, this poor woman in this very thin, busty dress. Like, she must be freezing. And she's walking around barefoot outside in New York City as beautiful digital snowflakes flutter down around her. Ooh, New York City in the winter. Yeah, so that's the that's P two, P two, yeah, fun movie. Uh, I, like I said, I never get I I don't find this film boring at all. Even though there is primarily two characters, the dynamic between the two characters I think is is brilliant for a cat and mouse type of thriller. You know, I do think that there is just enough like gore in the film, even though like we've said, that's not the film's purpose at all. It's not a really a slasher film. Uh, I think, but I do think there's like enough gore to satisfy the people that kind of want to see that in their horror, but yeah, it's an edge of the seat thriller. It does a lot of things, right? I can't really think of much. It does wrong. I guess my only thing, if I had a major, um, I don't know what's the word I'm looking, not a complaint, but maybe something, but maybe something I'd want to know. And it's just me as a, as an audience member, I'd want to know a little bit more backstory on Thomas, you know? And what made him this way? Because it seems to me, it just seems really odd that this guy would would be a security guard at a go through all of his life and end up being a security guard at an office building, you know, without any sort of previous thing issues. So, I, or you know what I mean? It's just. It's it, so it sort of it, it sort of comes out of nowhere just because we don't know anything about the character. Yeah, yeah. Like in a lot of ways, I think the setup for the movie, the way that they established everything and how it transpired, in some ways, the movie benefits from not really knowing a lot of things because, like I said, you are in you're almost put in like Angela's uh, point of view for almost all of the film, and including like your introduction to the events as they transpire, like. 
she really has no idea any of this is going to happen to her until it does. So it does make for like you as the viewer a very like firsthand kind of experience as things unfold. But in the sense of storytelling, I absolutely would have liked to have known more of who he was, why he operates the way he operates, and how he got to where he is today. Because there are a lot of issues that this individual has in the sense of how he communicates with other people, how he processes his anger and his feelings. Like, I'm confused how he got to a place of being a security guard in general. That doesn't seem like the right job for him. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I would have liked to have known more, but I still have very few complaints about this film. And I think like, Troy, I do think it, that it's something to acknowledge that this movie does have, it only has three on-screen deaths. One being the dog, one being the antagonist. And then there's a body reveal. Overall, the headcount is very minor, very minimal. But, and Jim, Jim. Well, Jim, that's what I'm saying. There's three. There's Jim, there's the dog, and then there's um, there's Tom. Carl is a reveal, but he's you don't even see – he's a body reveal. Overall, there's four people that die, one of which dies completely off camera, one of which who is the actual villain. So he, only the dog and Jim are killed over the course of the movie that we see, aside from him. Um, but comparing this to a movie like re- we recently reviewed Midnight Kiss for our Patreon listeners. If you're not a Patreon listener, maybe you can join our Patreon and, and treat yourself to that review um, because it did just drop recently. Um, and one of the things Troy and I brought up is the fact that like one of the biggest letdowns is there's this pretty significant cast of characters, but there's like a very minimal body count. And in that case, it, I think it hurt that movie to have so many characters and not give us one more like quality death scene. In this movie, because it's so strategically played, because it knows exactly the story that it's telling, and it's a very kind of unique and, again, intimate story, it, 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 the whole story revolves around these two characters. Everybody else is secondary. I really don't care that the, the body count is minimal. I didn't need any other violence or gore i mean could they have killed those two cops sure but the outcome of that scenario how it played out and you know what ended up transpiring ended up being just as interesting to me and kept my attention just as more as if those two would have gotten a fucking axe to the skull or something you know yeah i i feel like the film is moves at a fast enough pace i'm not gonna get like bored watching this it's tension filled you know, it's suspenseful. That's something like a midnight kiss really lacked was the horror, was the suspense, was the tension. This one is is tension basically from start to end. So I I don't I totally am with you. I don't need I did not need a high body count. I didn't need two cops to be killed for for no other reason than to add to the body count. Yeah, I, I feel like this is a pretty solid little thriller. And it definitely needs more attention. I, I kind of see it brought up. You know, every once in a while, especially around Christmas, as being like a Christmas-themed horror film that, that that fans are watching, but it definitely needs a little bit more attention because it's it's pretty solid. It's pretty solid. Yeah, I and I I overall I think that because of the standout female lead, I'm so invested in the material from the get-go because she's so well played, she's so well thought out, she's so rational, and she's just not in any way a bimbo. She's not stupid. This is a smart person who makes good choices and responds well in the in the in the midst of crisis. Like that right there is is enough 
to keep my attention over the course of this whole film. Because you're right, it moves very fast. And it's just about this unfolding cat and mouse scenario. I really don't need anybody else to die. All I want really is her to survive. And I get that. And so at the end of this movie, I'm very satisfied because it goes out with a fucking bang. She gets her vengeance and she makes it. And that's what I want. Yeah. And, and we kind of, we kind of figured that's how it was going to go. I, I mean, I think anybody that watches this movie and, and kind of knows the synopsis kind of knows how that's going to go, but the way, it, the way it's done, I think really exceeds expectations. I mean, that's, that's all I could say. I, P2, I highly recommend it. If you haven't, you know, if you haven't seen it, obviously, hopefully you've seen it if you're listening to this review because we spoil it for you, but check it out. So yeah, that's, that's my thoughts on P2. I I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a very solid little cat and mouse thriller, two brilliant lead performances. Um, And Wes Bentley, it's kind of cool to see him after doing this in 2007, kind of lead more into the horror genre with American Horror Story and a few other things he's done, but uh, yeah. Any any other thoughts on this before we kind of reveal what our next episode's going to be? Yeah, no, man. I, I mean, I'm right there with you. I think the the two leads really make, elevate this movie and take it to uh, a whole other level, but it's already a very intriguing concept. It's unique. It you know, It's a story we've seen done before, but it does it in a way that is, again, I've used this word a lot for this review, but very intimate. Um, very, very much driven by the two focal characters. And because we have two very skilled performers in those roles, we get quite an intense and palpable, suspenseful uh, thriller that really, yeah, it exceeds expectations. It's exactly the same term I would use for this. It You wouldn't expect such a little film to deliver such a punch, but it manages to do that and more with such gusto. Um, and I really enjoy it. Highly recommend it. P2, folks. So yeah, um, our our next episode. Do we want to reveal it or? Fuck yeah, man! I'm ready. I'm ready. Next, uh, next uh, review. I'm quite excited for this one. This is a movie I really enjoyed, and it's also fairly recent. Uh, it's 2017, The Ritual. It's a film that actually uh, went to Netflix, uh, and really, uh, I want to say surpassed my expectations. I'll let you know just how much it surpassed my expectations, but. Um, I've heard it called the male version of the, De- the Descent, and I think that's quite a good description of this film. If, you, if you're a fan of The Descent, I think you'll probably enjoy this movie as well. Um, it's directed by David Bruckner, who has directed several films I've enjoyed. He directed uh, 2007's The Signal, which I thought was pretty great. And he directed uh, the recently released The Night House, which a lot of people liked, but I did not. Uh, however, I really enjoy uh, his overall vision when he tells a story i think his vision brought to life is quite appealing and especially in regards to the ritual and so uh to assist us through this review i'm really excited because um my friend and fellow actor chris wolf is going to be participating in this review um chris appeared in the recently released um and much uh applauded and acknowledged uh, hideout. It's been getting a lot of positive reviews and been accepted in a lot of uh, high-profile film festivals as of late. And I know Chris has won quite a few awards regarding this already. Um, but I'm so I'm super excited for him because he's a really talented actor. But yeah, it's the film Hideout, so I would check that out as well because Chris is phenomenal in it. And so he's going to be helping us with this review because uh, one thing I find intriguing about the ritual is it's a strictly all male 
cast in the sense of the protagonists. And I thought, who better to help us review a movie about a bunch of strong male performances than an actor known for giving strong male performances? <laughs> so Chris is a great actor, and I think he's really going to help us get in the minds of these characters and uh, break down why these performances are really, I think, exceptional and stand out. Well, I cannot wait. The Ritual Definitely a great film, an even better novel. I don't know if you've ever read the novel, Adam Neville. Uh, it's a film that actually the, the follows the novel pretty well. Uh, the novel has a little bit more. There's a little uh, minor changes, but overall, they, they complement each other very well, the novel and the film. So it's always great when you see that. So yeah, I'm super excited to talk about the ritual. I know give me another chance to watch the film. I watched it when it came out and haven't revisited it since. So yeah. So yeah, the ritual. Be, got, be sure to watch it on Netflix before our next review so you're nothing spoiled for you. I'm excited to talk to Chris. I have never met him, but I, I definitely have followed uh, Hideout since its release and even before that because I know a couple other actors that are in that film. So uh, it's been cool to see the progress on that. So it'll be really exciting to, t- to chat with him about the film. So looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited. And I think this film is very different from a lot of the material we've been um uh, reviewing lately. So I'm just excited to do something that's kind of like fresh, different approach, if you will, uh, for our next, you know, our next episode. I think it'll just be something a little different for us. So uh, something to step away from the norm. I appreciate that. Even though we always bring you fun material here at Dark Night of the Podcast. Don't let me get you wrong there. But um, yeah, it's definitely something to look forward to. Uh, as for our listeners, you know, since we always do bring you good material, I like to think, I sure fucking hope so. Um, perhaps this is a good time for you to Finally, take two Apple Podcasts and leave us that review that you've been considering for months now. You've been thinking, I'm going to do it. Maybe I'll do it this week. I dare say this is the week they do it. How about you, Troy? Please, yeah, absolutely. It's New Year's. What better way to start your New Year's than opening up Apple Podcasts and pushing on the little five stars for Dark Night of the Podcast and just leaving a little comment or a little review. And if even if you don't want to leave a review, all you have to do is give us the five stars. It'll up our rating. We really appreciate it. 2022 is going to bring us some great stuff, uh, not only for you as listeners, but for us. We have a lot of cool ideas planned for the year. We have great films on our film schedule that we're going to cover. Uh, So yeah, and uh, as always, if you're interested in bonus content, hit up the Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. There are now, folks, six full-length episodes up for your viewing, for your listening pleasure. Six. Oh my God. For your viewing, no, but for your listening, yes. (laughs) But I gotta say, I mean, what a cornucopia of wealth. Six fucking full-length episodes, and then all those little bonus ones as well. Um, We ain't ain't stopping anytime soon. And now you could join it. You have, I think, don't they get, like, bonus? Like, if they were to join our Patreon now, don't they have, like, extra additional points to go back and listen to all the former material as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you join the Patreon, you go back. You can listen to, once you're a, once you subscribe, you can listen to everything in the past. Oh, my God. It's not like you, it's not like you only get to listen to what is posted after you become a, a, a patron. You're able to go back and listen to everything, depending on what your, what your tier level is. Yeah. So if you're like a level, if you join at the level one uh, or the tier one, which is like $2 a month, folks, come on, $2 a month, you get to listen to the mini bonus episodes that we have, which we have three of them up there uh, that you can listen to top final girls, top underrated final girls, top underrated death scenes and top Holly or top underrated Holly 
Hollywood holiday <laughs> horror films. If you join at the level, the tier two, which is $5, you get access to those bonus episodes plus three uh, full length mini episodes. I think you'd get access to uh, Terrifier. Uh, I don't know, three of them. And then, but if you join at the $10 a month level, you get access to everything, everything. So yeah, yeah, all of it. Oh my God. You could fill a full day. You could fill a full five fucking day. Full day. So just go take a look at it. The link will also be in the show notes uh, or just go to patreon.com. Search for Dark Knight of the Podcast and see what we have up. We also post our selections for each month. We also, we, we post them on Patreon for our patrons well, well in advance. So you patrons get to see what our episodes we're covering each month are going to be well before anybody else knows. So that's another little perk. Yeah. I mean, we, the, the gifts ain't stopping anytime soon every month we're going to keep loading it up with bonus content so i would say just join it now because there's no way you're going to be able to listen to all that additional bonus content over the course of what the next month you want to be caught up because there's more coming so guys that'll give you something to do for new year's if we didn't sell it with this pitch i mean we pitch it every week but my god we are determined we're determined yeah yeah we are determined we've been we've had we've had seven patrons of who we truly appreciate very much but but we'd like to see that go up to eight, nine, ten here very soon. So consider it, folks. Like I said, two dollars, two dollars a month. Come on. Yeah, come on. And for all of this, for Troy's velvet voice. Oh my God. <laughs> all right, folks. So we are going to end the episode. We really hope you enjoyed P two. Thank you again, Craig, for suggesting it. We had a blast with it. We hope that you enjoyed the episode. Let us know if we did it justice or not. But until next week when we talk about the ritual. Yeah. Happy New Year. Happy, happy New Year. You will you'll, you won't hear us again until 2022. All right. Thank you. Happy New Year. Oh, my God. It'll be a fresh new year, a fresh new take on the world. I can't wait. Until then, everybody, thank you for joining us through this hell of a year. And we promise that 2022 is going to be all the more exciting. Absolutely, folks. Again, happy new year. Have a great New Year holiday. Be safe, and we will see you next week. 